Welcome to Securing America with me, Frank Gaffney, the program that's a kind of owner's manual for protecting the country we love against all enemies, foreign and domestic, to the glory of God and his kingdom. We're going to be talking in the course of this hour about uh, two very important topics. Uh, one is the war against Israel and, well, Western civilization as well. Uh, we're going to also be talking about China and the war that uh, it has long waged against the United States and seems perhaps poised to ramp up into a shooting war. These are two critically important topics. But I did want to start just very briefly by talking a little bit about the border. We have, of course, an open border at the moment. We also have a president of the United States who is professing to be determined to secure it. He's also talking about signing a Senate bill that would do no such thing. Um, this is a man, Joe Biden, and his Secretary of Department of Homeland Security, who have created this crisis and their professions that what they have got now coming out of the United States Senate, evidently, uh, namely a bill that would actually allow 5,000 more of these illegal immigrants to come in every day at a minimum, and that would create new incentives for them to come here by new generous terms of amnesty. I cannot be serious in saying that this is actually intended to reduce the vulnerability we currently face from the border. We need instead to build the wall, finish it, get that job done, enforce our existing immigration laws, and not least, we need to find and remove those uh, unaccompanied military-aged Chinese and jihadist men now populating that immigration flow. We're going to turn, with that briefing in mind, to another border, another national security threat, I believe, both to this country and to our friends in the state of Israel. And who better to talk to about what's going on there at the moment than Rabbi Pesach Waliki, a regular contributor to this program, I'm very proud to say, and we're always delighted to have him with us. He stands shoulder to shoulder, and that is the name of his podcast. He is also um, a frequent contributor to Israel 365 News. I sometimes get the numbers wrong, but that's it. 365 News. Rabbi, it's great to have you with us, sir. Thank you very much for joining us and for all the work you do on that Thank side you, of the Frank. pond. It's an honor right to be here. with you again. Thank you. Listen, I, I wanted to start off by uh, just asking for a response from you to a statement that the prime minister, former prime minister, the foreign minister now of the United Kingdom, David Cameron, made in Israel yesterday, uh, among a host of really quite intemperate remarks about uh, the Israeli government, um, he declared that the United Kingdom was actively considering recognizing a Palestinian state before there actually is one. Could you give us your thoughts on what such a statement signals as well as its implications? Well, thank you for asking the question, Frank, and thank you for phrasing the question that way, what such a statement signals, because it's always important to pay attention when there are news items, when there are headlines that don't actually report events, but report statements. Because the first question we have to ask ourselves is, why is the statement being made? Why is it being made by who's making it? And, uh, and you know, what are the implications of those questions rather than just viewing these statements as something someone said? If David Cameron made a statement like this, obviously it was run up the flagpole beforehand. It was decided who was gonna make the statement and what exactly the intent is. Obviously, the war is... Could, could I just ask you to pause on that for a sure. second? When you say run up the flagpole, you don't mean within Her Majesty's government. You mean with the United oh. States as well. No, I, I don't assume that any of these governments uh, are, are acting independently at this point. We're living under one global regime that has a shared agenda across the globe. We see it all the time in their cooperation. We see it... Look, we saw it over the last few years with their use of, of, uh, of terms like... Uh, like Build Back Better, which suddenly became a slogan all over the world. There is one regime that has a lot of different chapters uh, and different uh, different locations, and it's clear that they're working in concert. When, when we have someone like David Cameron making a statement like this about a Palestinian state, 
pay attention also that he said in the statement, and this was on Monday when he was speaking to a reception of Arab ambassadors to London, he said that the goal of uh, recognizing a Palestinian state even before there is one is to, is to create, quote, this is his words, irreversible progress, irreversible progress. The goal is to create, of course, a fait accompli, that there is such an entity as a Palestinian state. Look, Frank, the whole concept of awarding awarding the Palestinians, the quote-unquote Palestinians, which is a topic we should get into at some point, the, the whole dubious nature of this made-up national identity, which didn't exist just a, a short while ago, but claiming that there should be such a thing as a Palestinian state as a reward, I guess, for October 7th is just an absurdity. And it's it, it goes hand-in-hand. It's an obscenity. It's absurd. But, you know, even before we go to that absurdity, let's just ask a few simple questions. If we had David Cameron sitting here and said, OK, you support a Palestinian state. So tell me, David Cameron, should this state be a democracy? Is that what you want? If it's supposed to be a democracy, what do you who should be? Who are you hoping wins an election among the Palestinian people, considering that according to even the most recent polling, Palestinians overwhelmingly to the tune of 75 to 80 percent support what Hamas did on October 7th. Mahmoud Abbas, the head of the Palestinian Authority, the leader of Fatah, the heir to Yasser Arafat, who the U.S. State Department, and I imagine people like Cameron have fantasies that such a person and such an entity would end up governing this, uh, this made-up Palestinian state. The problem is that Mahmoud Abbas was elected to a four-year term in 2006. Let me say that again. He was elected to a four-year term in 2006. There's not been an election since. The reason there hasn't been an election, and everyone with a wink and a nudge has agreed to not press for elections, is that the polling shows that Hamas would win overwhelmingly. So, Mr. Cameron, do you believe that this Palestinian state that you're intending to create should be a democracy? Should it be able to choose its own leadership? Are you going to outlaw political parties that call for the destruction of Israel, I guess that would include the Palestinian Authority as well. So the whole thing is just, it, it, it's ridiculous on its face. Let me, this is such an important point. Uh, and again, there's no accountability for any of this, uh, as uh, we hear people endlessly talking about the inevitable end state of a two-state solution. David Cameron, as I understand it in his remarks, um, alluded to the fact that we need a new Palestinian authority. So to wave a magic wand, there's going to be a new one. And get this, they will be populated uh, by, quote, technocratic and good leaders, unquote. So this clearly is aspirational, but I'm not even sure that we could identify people oh. who would fit those qualifications, let alone see how they get to be elected if uh, if they stand against the popular sentiment throughout, not just Gaza, of course, but as you know so well, Rabbi, the so-called West Bank, uh, the populations of uh, these Palestinians, who all seem determined overwhelmingly to uh, seek the destruction of the state of Israel. No. But let's bear in mind, the only reason they think that way is because of this very same Palestinian Authority having governed them since 1994 or so. And the school books, the, the, 1994 is, Frank, you know, it, it, we like to think it's, it's pretty recent, but that's 30 years ago. And that means that for 30 years, you have m- people who are middle-aged at this point. You have people who have families who were raised from kindergarten to believe that Israel is illegitimate and ought to be destroyed. That's what they've been teaching in their school systems for decades and decades. And cultivating in every other way as well as in their schools. Rabbi, we have to take a very short break. We'll be right back with more with Rabbi Pesach Willicki right after this.
This is Frank Afney with the Secure Freedom Minute. According to Team Biden, the president is committed to securing the southern border and raring to sign bipartisan Senate legislation that would do just that. In fact, Joe Biden has destroyed that frontier, thereby enabling, with help from Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, a literal invasion for which both deserve to be impeached. The truth is that Joe Biden deliberately created the present crisis. Only a man determined to perpetuate it could portray a bill that would admit at least 5,000 more unlawful immigrants every day and create new amnesty incentives for coming here as one that will, quote, shut down the border, unquote. The Biden-Mayorkas invasion will not end with more such malfeasance. That requires instead finishing the wall, enforcing our existing immigration laws, and removing those who violated them, starting with the unaccompanied military-aged Chinese and jihadist males. This is Frank Afney. Welcome back. We are visiting with Rabbi Pesach Walicki. He is one of the co-hosts of a terrific podcast entitled Shoulder to Shoulder. He also is an information warrior of the First Order in this critically important battle space. Uh, you can follow much of his work at Israel 365 News. Uh, and Rabbi, we were talking a bit about um, the posture of these Western nations, uh, which is at best, you know, aspirational, as they say, uh, wish fulfillment is, I, I think, not a very sound policy for uh, <laughs> statecraft. And yet that's what we're about. Uh, Cameron simply being the one who's most recently sort of advanced this idea. I do want to talk to you about the people who obviously greenlighted this statement of his about acknowledging, recognizing at the UN and elsewhere, a Palestinian state before there is such a thing. And that would be the Biden administration. Um, there's an awful lot going on at the moment on the part of this administration. Um, much of it seemingly very much at odds with not only the sentiments of the vast majority of Americans, but also our best national security interests. Um, talk to us about uh, this idea that, um, first of all, we think it would be a good idea. In fact, we think it's absolutely mandatory that there be a Palestinian state, despite the questions you've just been raising. And um, we are going to bend Israel to our will in this regard. If top toppling the government is required, so be it. Look, Frank, all of the mistakes that that are made in the Middle East, all of the all of the foolish policies in the Middle East are all based on the same single mistake. And that's the mistake of thinking that the road to peace uh, is, that, that peace is accomplished, that the path to peace runs through coming to some sort of appeasement and accommodation with bad actors. That's, and that's not the road to peace. Donald Trump taught us that lesson very clearly by you know, taking out Soleimani and, and destroying ISIS and empowering the actual moderates in the Arab world, like the Saudis at, at the time and the Emiratis. I don't know where the Saudis are now. They play, they play both sides. But by empowering the, the more peaceful actors and punishing the bad actors, Donald Trump cut off funding to the Palestinian Authority because they directly fund terrorist families. He moved the embassy to Jerusalem, which people thought of as a symbolic act, but it was actually one of the most important foreign policy decisions he made because it, it revealed that the king had no clothes. By moving the embassy after decades of all of us being told that this would spark a worldwide war and the dog that didn't bark was that the Abraham Accords happened after the embassy move. So we learned, we learned during the Trump administration from practical evidence that the road to peace in the Middle East runs through showing strength and beating down the bad actors. And the, the Biden administration now has serious egg on its face. They have egg on their face because the Iranians are killing U.S. servicemen. The Iranian, the Iranian proxy, the Houthis, are disrupting global shipping and, and, and directly attacking American interests. And now the Biden administration plays this game that they're playing with Cameron making a statement as well. And the game is that we make a statement 
that is meant to appease the Arabs. And we see how it flies. And then and then as need arises, we walk it back. So last week we had Joe Biden making a statement that he was going to uh, he was going to uh, take a second look at the at the arms sales to Israel. And let's stress to all of our America first audience that Israel is interested in buying munitions, buying weapons from the U.S. We're not looking for handouts. In fact, foreign aid, direct handouts to Israel is a minimal part of our budget. And I'm of the opinion and many other thinkers on the right in Israel are of the opinion that we should actually not receive any aid from the United States. We're not looking for aid. Israel can afford what it needs. We're talking about arms purchases. But Biden is talking about curtailing those arms purchases to Israel. Now, immediately after making the statement, of course, the White House walked it back and said, no, 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 our policy hasn't changed. And this is the game they've been playing. They've played this game on a number of issues throughout the Biden administration where the president or someone else makes a statement that pushes against uh, prevailing policy. Then they see how it flies as a trial balloon, and then they walk it back afterwards. Now, in Israel, the way this is being understood, because we know that the munitions sales have continued and the munitions uh, have, have continued to arrive in Israel. So the way it's being understood in Israel, and Frank, this might be accurate, it might not be, but I was listening to, uh, to, to some Israeli analysts the other day in Hebrew who were saying that they see a rift between the defense establishment and the State Department, and that the State Department is more in appeasement mode and still looking for accommodations and not wanting to stir things up too much with the Iranians, but that the Defense Department has a very strong relationship with Israel, and meaning at the at, not at the appointing level, but at the um, at the rank and file level, at the level of the real decision makers behind the scenes, that they are all in on supporting Israel. So, I don't know what to believe, but I do know. Yeah, from your lips to God's ears, I think is the expression, Rabbi. I, I'm not sure it's so, but uh, the very least, well, I don't know. somebody, somebody in the United States government ought to recognize that our interests lie with Israel's not just survival, but its military and strategic success. And, and, and to think otherwise, I mean, you're right. Clearly, the State Department has never gotten that idea. And it is all about appeasing our adversaries. Again, we call the Biden doctrine, as you know, Rabbi, <laughs> it's you know, treating your enemies better than your friends. It's a formula for disaster, of course. But but to this point, if you would, uh, if, in fact, the idea of peace through strength is no longer being practiced and we are, as a result, emboldening enemies, whether they're Iran's proxies or Iran itself, um, we're now confronting a situation where those enemies are directly attacking and murdering American personnel, not just Israelis, not just you know civilians in Israel, not just other friends in the region, but and, and the our way own these people. people think, right? And the way these people think is that if they're attacking us, this is a good time to create a Palestinian state. I mean, the, the whole it, it's so absurd. You know, that, that the feeling is if my if these evil people are attacking me, I better figure out a way to appease them so that they stop attacking me instead of saying these are the evil actors. They must be sanctioned. They must be destroyed. They must be beaten in order for good to prevail. I, it's such a simple common sense situation here. It's uh, but we have to get into the heads of these people to understand why they're behaving so irrationally. Well, I, I mean psychoanalysis is in order perhaps, but we're not going to do it here. I do want to just touch on two points though sure. with you quickly. One is um, clearly uh, there is an effort afoot on the part of the Biden administration to help those in Israel who are determined to bring down the government of Israel. A lot of talk about elections in the middle of this conflict and obviously undercutting Bibi Netanyahu at every turn. Uh, and secondly, that um, we are seeing continuing talk of this idea that there will be some kind of protracted ceasefire put into place. Uh, the issue now being narrowly defined as, well, will Israel be able to go back to war when it's over? Uh, quick thoughts on both. We've got a minute. Okay, we'll deal with the second one first. On the issue of the protracted ceasefire and the question of whether Israel could go back, you know, when the first ceasefire and hostage deal happened, much earlier in the war, um, I was among those in this country who was who was very outspoken about being very worried about 
what about the resolve of the Israeli military to start things up again. And thank God my fears were proven wrong and Israel showed their resolve. And I believe that that is why Hamas is so hesitant to make a deal now, because Hamas realized from that first deal, I think Hamas believed, and Biden did also from his statements, I think they believed that that first ceasefire, it would, it, that it was going to be difficult for Israel to to jump right back into a ramped up campaign, and they did it. Yeah, yeah. And on BB quickly, fifteen seconds. Yeah, on um, yeah on the uh, on the other issue. I'm sorry. Oh gosh, I just blanked out. Bibi Netanyahu. Oh yeah, on the bringing down. Of, I'm sorry, Frank. On the bringing down of Bibi Netanyahu. Look, it's not just. Unfortunately, it's not just the uh, you know the the fifth column here in Israel that's trying to bring him down, but it's their allies in the U.S. The Biden administration has been messaging against Bibi. It's all part of trying to destabilize Israel and make us weak enough to accept whatever accommodation these these people dream up, including the Palestinian state. Utterly but, reprehensible and intolerable. And we are out of time. We have to let you go. Rabbi Pesach Wilicki, thank you. God bless you, my friend. Come back with us updates as soon as possible. We'll be right back with more on the other subject, China. Stay tuned. Night after night in cities across the country, black-garbed assailants clash with police in the streets, smash windows and throw Molotov cocktails in an effort to destroy police stations, federal courthouses, and local businesses, all in the name of anti-fascism. Most Americans are now, sadly, all too aware of the movement known as Antifa. But where did they come from? What do they want? And how do we stop their campaign of violent mayhem? The Center for Security Policy Press is proud to present Unmasking Antifa, Five Perspectives on a Growing Threat, this new book looks at the history, ideology, organization, finances, and strategy of Antifa and provides an in-depth analysis for law enforcement officers, policymakers, and the general public. From street fighting tactics of the Black Bloc to fundraising by prominent left-wing foundations, Unmasking Antifa is the go-to guide to understand this elusive and dangerous threat. Get your copy of Unmasking Antifa, Five Perspectives on a Growing Threat at Amazon.com. Welcome back. And it's always a delight to be able to say we have Colonel Grant Newsom, United States Marine Corps, retired in the House virtually. We've caught up with him at some far remove. Uh, usually he is forward deployed in the Pacific Theater, and I believe that's the case today. Grant is a not only a very distinguished warrior in uniform, he's also been a foreign service officer and a military attache and Embassy Tokyo. He is a businessman and entrepreneur. He is uh, a member of our Committee on the Present Danger China, a senior fellow of our Center for Security Policy. In short, an extraordinary uh, resource for all of us. We're always grateful to catch up with him, among other reasons, because he's authored recently a terrific book. It's entitled When China Attacks, A Warning to America. Colonel, it's good to have you back, sir. Welcome once again. No, thanks very much, Frank. Glad to be here. I'm anxious to continue a conversation you and I've had off and on for now several weeks, Grant, simply because I think it's one of those issues that, as a military man and a serious strategic thinker, indeed somebody who has especially been thinking about when China attacks, uh, that you've addressed and understand, but that too few of the rest of us are even the least bit clued up about, despite our best efforts, needless to say. And that would be the presence in our country now of, by some estimates, including that of, uh, I believe it's 10 senior, now retired FBI counterterrorism, counterintelligence executives, that we probably have divisions worth of Chinese nationals, unaccompanied military-aged men inside the United States. And the concern they have, and I think those of us who are tracking this have, is that they're not just military-aged men, they're military personnel out of the Chinese People's Liberation Army, maybe its special forces. You and I have discussed what could go wrong 
with such an invading force in large numbers inside our country when China attacks someplace else. Uh, and I'd like to just sort of reprise that topic with you in general, but specifically, Grant, to ask you about the further feature of this that makes it just absolutely terrifying to me. And that is the possibility that these men might wind up marrying up with the contents, not of the Chinese Communist Party established biolab in Reedley, California, because that has now been discovered and dismantled. But we're told by, among others, Congressman Mike Gallagher, the chairman of the House Select Committee on the Chinese Communist Party, there may well be a bunch of other labs like those inside the United States with pathogens and, you know, biological weapons manufacturing capabilities and the like. Give us your thoughts, if you would, sir, on this particular peril and the need to address it rather more aggressively than we are at the moment. Well, it, it's very good strategy on the part of the Chinese. You know, anytime you can get into your enemy's home front and cause trouble, that's what you want to do. I mean, the OSS in World War II had manuals on this sort of thing, nothing at all on the scale of what the Chinese could do. Uh, and this is say, this is good military strategy, no matter what. You know, say even uh, before the war in Iraq, uh, the Americans would certainly have liked to have the opportunity to have some people in or inside Iraq. You just want to do it. And here, what we've done is we've opened the door, and we have let them bring in thousands of people. We've certainly given them the opportunity. They appear to have taken us up on it. Yeah. We will find out about Colonel, it. Colonel, can I just ask you, as a, as a stu serious student of China, my understanding is that this is not just good strategy, obviously, but this is, this is part of the practice of warfare, going back at least to the warring states period in China. They were always putting, you know, enemies behind their enemy's line, or forces behind their enemy's lines, were they not? Oh, they would be astonished at why they wouldn't. They're just, I think, pinching themselves at the fact that they have been allowed for the last three years to push as many people across the border into the United States as they want. Uh, they did this during the Chinese Civil War, uh, say the invasion of Hainan, which is island, which is about as big as Maryland. They pushed all sorts of uh, insurgents and their own people inside Hainan Island. It's just what you do. And as you said, once you're inside, the uh, sky's the limit as to how much trouble you can cause. Yeah. You know, I, I was struck by um, this particular connection uh, that we have had reportedly in our possession a speech by the guy who 20 years ago was the defense minister of China, Chi Chen in which he told a closed meeting of senior party cadre that the plan, the, the mission of the Chinese biological warfare program was, according to him, given by Deng Xiaoping, the former general secretary of the Chinese Communist Party, who brought us, by the way, the Tiananmen Square massacre and the whole hide and bide unrestricted warfare strategy. Apparently, Deng told the BW people, uh, your mission is to depopulate the United States so that it could be colonized by communist China. It, when you say the sky's the limit, do you mean that it could actually involve that? Oh, certainly. Uh, the Chinese always tell you what they're going to do. They telegraph their punches and we just choose not to believe them. But what we do know about their efforts in the biological warfare front is that they are widespread, deep, and unfortunately, really um, sinister. Uh, the idea, for example, of coming up with pathogens that only kill certain ethnic groups. Uh, it, it's stuff straight out of a James Bond movie, but worse. And we know, this is just what we know they've been doing. And you figure you only know a part of what is actually being done. Uh, so if you're not worried about this or terrified of it, uh, you've got a problem. This is how bad it is. Well, and to put a fine point on it, if your government, whose job it is to worry about these sorts of things, is seemingly as indifferent 
to this danger as it appears. Uh, I mean, for uh, among other reasons, one can point to the fact that the FBI and the Centers for Disease Control seemed completely uh, unconcerned about this Reedley facility. There were, I think it was four months that elapsed after it was discovered before they deigned to even go check it out. And uh, I, I just have to say that that when you talk about the possibility that these guys would seek to eliminate vast numbers of Americans, uh, the idea that anybody's not taking that uh, with the utmost seriousness, let alone taking action to prevent it, is shocking in the extreme. Uh, we, we talked with our friend Sam Faddis the other day about um, his time uh, in the headquarters of the CIA at Langley at the tail end of his distinguished 20-year career, where he was responsible for monitoring and addressing weapons of mass destruction terrorism. And he said when he was there, if something like Reedley had turned up, he would have had FBI agents detailed to his office on the plane within an hour out there to find out what on earth was going on to assess the evidence of, uh, of a really dangerous situation. And here we are four months or so allowed to pass. And uh, still, I think there's not a lot of seriousness being attached to it. This is so worrying. And, and uh, we just uh, to talk a little bit further about this point, uh, our, our Committee on the Present Danger China webinar this week is going to be on, and you contributed so massively to this, uh, Colonel, all the time. It's on this bioengineering uh, emphasis that the Chinese are putting. Uh, and, and you're right, a lot of this is published in their open press, that they're pursuing the ability to fairly tailor this uh, biological warfare to certain ethnicities or demographics or nationalities, maybe. Um, how could we be looking, uh, you know, askance at all this or, or averting our gaze, I guess, is the point I'm trying to make. You know, I don't know. You know, sometimes you want to characterize it as just human nature, you know, where you don't want to take on difficult subjects. Uh, but this is just, at a minimum, breathtaking incompetence. But also you've seen a very conscientious move on the part of uh, successive administrations. The Trump administration was the exception. Uh, but even then, they had plenty of critics uh, in the political class and the Democratic Party, and even some on the Republican side uh, who criticized them for going after the Chinese. This was racist. Uh, it was unfair. And they, in fact, were uh, ultimately the so-called China Initiative, which was nothing more than a prudent effort to look at what China was doing to us. Uh, that was closed down as soon as the Biden people came in. So imagine you're some guy who wants to make his name and you want to go after this Chinese threat. Who is going to support you within the FBI, the CIA? Uh, probably nobody. Uh, there may be nobody who matters. Uh, so that's where we are. It's, we've got this uh, threat, danger coming to uh, towards us, and nobody will uh, actually do anything much about it. And it, when it hits, uh, we're going to know it. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think in a way it, it probably is even worse than that, that um, we're actively seeing the FBI and the Centers for Disease Control told to stand down not to go pursue these things. I, I just can't imagine that they would be doing this if they weren't being instructed in that fashion, which raises the larger question, which we also have talked about a lot, which is, are the leaders of this country playing for the other team? And I think in the case of Joe Biden, that is almost certainly the case. Colonel, we have to take a very short break. We're going to come right back and we're going to talk a bit more about what this all means for us and uh, the region that the Chinese are moving against at the moment. We'll be right back with more. Stay tuned.
This is Frank Afney with the Secure Freedom Minute. According to Team Biden, the president is committed to securing the southern border and raring to sign bipartisan Senate legislation that would do just that. In fact, Joe Biden has destroyed that frontier, thereby enabling, with help from Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, a literal invasion for which both deserve to be impeached. The truth is that Joe Biden deliberately created the president crisis. Only a man determined to perpetuate it could portray a bill that would admit at least 5,000 more unlawful immigrants every day and create new amnesty incentives for coming here as one that will, quote, shut down the border, unquote. The Biden-Mayorkas invasion will not end with more such malfeasance. That requires instead finishing the wall, enforcing our existing immigration laws, and removing those who violated them, starting with the unaccompanied military-aged Chinese and jihadist males. This is Frank Afney. Colonel Grant Newsom is in the house. Welcome back. And uh, we're delighted, as always, to have him with us for an extended conversation. And it's needed because what we're looking at, we've just been talking about the possibility that our home front might be attacked by Xi Jinping as part of a strategy for, well, tying us down, keeping us from being able to uh, interfere successfully, uh, you know, materially with the efforts that he has in mind, obviously, to take Taiwan. Uh, and Colonel, I, I want to come back to the internal considerations that may be operating for him to want to try to do that. But um, for the moment, I just want to connect a couple of further dots. Um, you and I and our committee have been talking about um, Xi as a kind of strategic arsonist, a pyromaniac, even one might say in terms of various conflagrations that he, I believe, has been instrumental in setting off in Ukraine and Israel, the, the Red Sea now, and uh, prospectively in a couple of other places. And I'd like to get your thoughts, uh, Colonel, on how this is playing out um, in terms of uh, treading our forces, depleting our resources, and otherwise distracting us from uh, uh, what our friend Captain James Fennell calls the main thing. Well, one way to look at this when we're, say, talking about the, the home front, say the biological threat, is this is just one front. You know, the Chinese are attacking us on probably 20 other fronts. And you know, just looking at it geographically, uh, you know, they're softening us up in the U.S. and getting us ready for something even bigger. It happens in conjunction with a lot of things that are already going and some that are going to come. When I say already going, you know, look at the, the Chinese military buildup in the Western Pacific. Uh, if you follow this out on a trend line, they are going to have us greatly outnumbered, outgunned, and outmanned. Uh, there they already do in some uh, quarters. Uh, the Pacific Islands, their subversion is just nonstop and everywhere. It's very successful. Uh, they've just recently got another small but strategic island to switch its recognition from Taiwan to the PRC. Uh, you see this in Latin America, where Chinese commercial interests are really going to front for a military presence eventually, uh, have run, sort of running the table almost, except for this uh, slight hiccup in Australia, in Argentina. And I hope that continues. But this is to say it's just it's a multi-front assault that we're under. And the Chinese are, are, uh, have the initiative, what you call it, the gumption, to actually try a lot of things at once in a lot of places. They've got the size, the scale. Uh, to be able to put more pressure on us than, than we could have imagined. Indeed. Um, Colonel, I mentioned off air that we um, had a chance to visit with uh, one of our great friends and resources as well, Cleo Pascal, who mentioned that uh, you and she had been in some of those island uh, chains in the Western Pacific recently. And, uh, and her report was rather grim about the extent to which the Chinese are successfully moving uh, in with their influence operations and their military as well. And one of these flashpoints is the Philippines. And I'm interested in your thoughts about um, 
the extent to which the the Chinese perceive the opportunity to um, act aggressively, to put it mildly, against the Filipinos, um, without fear the United States would materially interfere. Well, they're not sure just yet what the Americans will do to back up the Filipinos. I think the U.S.-Philippine military relationship has actually improved quite a lot in recent years, uh, and also uh, the you know, politically the Philippine president is sees his country's interest as with the United States. Uh, but the Chinese are still applying pressure. The Philippines are standing up to them. And what you're seeing is a, really an effort also to domestically subvert the Philippines so that their guys, their guy uh, kind of pushes out Marcos eventually. Uh, so the, that's the pro-American uh, president. You know, we'll see how it goes. But the Philippine military threat, political threat, subversion threat to the Philippines uh, is what it always has been. Uh, they've just had a, a few sort of stumbles in recent times, uh, but it won't let up. And we will see how this plays out. Uh, the next couple of years are going to be very important, maybe even just the next couple months uh, when the Chinese call our bluff on whether we're going to support the Philippines when they try to reinforce troops they've got on uh, Second Thomas Shoal. Mm -hmm. well, uh, Colonel, <clears throat> earlier in the program, we were talking uh, with another of our very important contributors, uh, Rabbi Pesek Waliki, about how Israel is faring at the moment in terms of uh, the support from the United States. Uh, among other things, great and growing evidence that the United States government is determined to try to bring down the government of Israel. Um, any thoughts on how this kind of behavior is being perceived in places like, uh, well, Manila for one, but uh, Taiwan and, uh, you know, Tokyo and Japan as well. Oh, yeah. People notice uh, when we apply so much pressure, indeed, try to harm countries that are our friends. Uh, and if it's a administration that they don't like in, or we don't like in one of those countries, well, it seems as though they get worse treatment than if you're an, are an outright enemy. And you can see, look at how Israel is treated. Look how Iran is treated. Uh, you know, we, we give Iran billions of dollars. We let them do all sorts of things, kill Americans, and we don't do anything and do anything much. And yet Israel, it, our support for them, one has to be very troubled. And I think as these other countries that you've noticed, they wonder about the United States. It used to be there was no doubt about it. But these days, there are doubts, and we've created them. That has material consequences, obviously, in the minds of both friends and adversaries. I'm, I'm fond of saying that if you treat your enemies better than your friends, you're going to have more enemies and fewer friends, certainly reliable friends. And uh, I, I fear this is playing out. And in, in some of those islands, uh, the Solomons comes to mind, uh, where the Chinese are making real inroads. And uh, I don't need to tell you, sir, your beloved Marine Corps uh, expended a lot of blood and national treasure trying to uh, retake some of those islands from the last empire that uh, sought to displace us and and uh, and dominate the region. The Greater East Asian Co-Prosperity Sphere, I think they called it, and uh, it seems to be back under Chinese, with Chinese mm -hmm. characteristics, as they are fond of saying. Colonel, we have to take one more break. We'll be right back with more with uh, Colonel Grant Newsom talking about what's going on inside China, whether that might make more less likely or more. Welcome back. We're speaking with Colonel Grant Newsom, United States Marine Corps retired, a member of our Committee on the Present Danger of China, the author of a marvelous book, When China Attacks, A Warning to America. And Colonel, um, among other things that you're warning about, um, because 
you have expertise not just in military matters, of course, but also on the economic side, uh, is that uh, there are developments inside China that are portentous, shall we say. Uh, it's a little unclear how they will all play out. But I, I want to get your current thinking on whether the dangers uh, that we face from China are likely to be intensified as a result of what Xi Jinping is facing internally, uh, threats maybe, some say, even to the very rule of the Chinese Communist Party, um, arising from a variety of economic and, uh, well, for that matter, societal, demographic sources as well. Or alternatively, whether, you know, this kind of circumstance is going to make it less likely that the Chinese will lash out uh, militarily against Taiwan, almost certainly, but us as well. well. I think in a case of a normal country that China has so many domestic problems, uh, it would cause a country like a normal country uh, to just back off on anything it had planned for beyond its borders. China is not a normal country when it's run by the people's, by the Chinese Communist Party. And my sense, and that's all it is, it's just my estimate, is that they can with, absorb a lot more pressure, a lot more discomfort uh, than we can. Uh, and you know, the economic problems they've got, the, this would have just caused absolute chaos in the United States. But I think China say, can absorb more difficulty, more trouble. They've shown themselves that, and this is before the Communist Party, this is China. Uh, so I think that they've actually got the, the wherewithal and even the, the stability um, to keep up their external uh, pressures. And I think that is, they fully intend to do that, um, particularly when it comes to Taiwan, when it comes to teaching Japan a lesson. And so you look for uh, how they have been able to keep the support for their, their military. They've been funding the military, churning out ships and aircraft. Uh, they're active in outer space. So despite the demographic problems, the economic problems, the military gets the highest priority. And that doesn't seem to be all that affected by the domestic problems they have. And if you're looking to use a military overseas, well, they've got one and they're getting an even better one. Yeah. Let, let me do a thought experiment with you, Colonel, if I may, because one of those problems, uh, which you sort of alluded to there a moment ago, is um, a societal phenomenon that would be intolerable inside a country like ours, for example. I'm told that the youth unemployment is something on the order of, I don't have the exact number, but something on the order of 30%, maybe a little higher, maybe a little lower. Uh, and this is among a population, a cohort, that is by virtue of the one-child policy overwhelmingly young men. Most of the baby girls have been killed off as, you know, they sex-selected abortions to keep to the one-child regime. If, as I think it's Gordon Chang who's told us, there may be as many as 40 million young men for whom there are no women, a lot of whom are unemployed, a lot of whom are educated and, you know, have expectations of a better life than they're getting. Um, might that not be a further impetus for a guy like Xi Jinping, especially if he's under stress, not only from that quarter, but, you know, the, the banking crisis and the real estate collapse and the stock market plummeting and, you know, more generally, um, an aging population and so on to be moved as tyrants often are to find some sort of external outlet for the frustration that uh, particularly those young men might feel uh, cannon fodder uh, may be their fate, but uh, getting them out of the country fighting for the motherland might be better than having them inside the country, possibly fighting the regime. What do you think well, of the think, thought experiment? Oh, I think so. That would be what I think is more likely. Uh, you know, say in a normal country, they'd try to find jobs for people, try to do something to uh, make the economy better. But in this sort of regime, 
Uh, if you've got 30 million men, 40 million men, who are never going to get married. Uh, well, you want to keep them busy. And you, if you can spend a million or two, say, dying on an overseas venture that's going to get you something, well, why not? You know, there's nobody gives two hoots about in China. The leadership gives two hoots about individual citizens' lives. And this is just a resource to be expended and a problem to be done away with. So I do see this in a, in a sort of a more threatening way than some others will. I don't see the so-called demographic uh, problem as something that's going to bring down the CCP anytime soon, um, maybe over a hundred years. But that's just my sense. But I, I'm with you on the uh, the threat that we, that China poses uh, overseas. Yeah, and and Grant, you've been particularly helpful, I think, in assisting us in calibrating on. Um, one other dimension of that threat overseas, uh, namely the build-out of what sure looks like a colonial imperial infrastructure with, among other things, power projection as a purpose. This would be the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, especially, you've talked about Latin America as a place where this penetration has obvious strategic implications for our country. Um, I, I'm tracking on uh, particularly Peru, where I believe there are, you know, huge efforts being made by the Chinese, not only to build out this, these ports that would accommodate their carrier battle groups, but also to essentially turn uh, Peru into a, a military pawn of, uh, of China in the region. Um, just very quickly, a minute, half a minute left, um, your thoughts on the Belt and Road Initiative as a means of power projection for those uh, ulterior purposes of G. Oh, it's just, uh, it's a bonus, you know, from beyond anything commercial the Chinese get from it. Uh, they are building out the infrastructure to deploy the People's Liberation Army, Navy and Air Force, and the ground component all over the world. And they are doing it on a scale that probably nobody else could do. Uh, and if it's unchecked, you can kind of see where it's going to lead. We we think it's going to lead not to uh, World War Three, but World War G. <laughs> Heard it here first, folks. Carol, thank you for joining us. Come back soon. I hope the sure, rest of you do the same next time. Until then, go forth and multiply. <laughs>